Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the show, y'all. We got a full one. We got a full one. Um, I will get to the politics in just a second. Uh, I want to talk about the stimulus bill. That's a big story. I want to talk about the record numbers for the VP debate, which might be a little bit surprising to people. Um, Pelosi attempts to troll Trump with the 25th Amendment. We'll dive into that as well. Uh, Fox News keeps punching themselves in the dick by attacking incredibly popular programs. I will be laughing my way through that segment. Trump contemplated a stunt, which would have been insane. Um, He didn't end up doing it, but we got to talk about it. If he followed through with it, I may have become a full-on conspiracy theorist and said that the entire COVID-19 diagnosis and whatnot was fake. Um, And... You know, I have to say, I do want to lead today's show off with a little bit of talk on uh, the NBA Finals. So I'm going to go ahead and do exactly that. So I know, you know, 98% of the time on this show we're talking politics, but I did want to talk a little bit about the NBA Finals and and give you guys my take because it kind of is right in line with what I've been experiencing in other aspects of life, which is everything feels like a movie now. Everything feels like a movie. Ever since 2016 and onward, with Donald Trump becoming president, everything just felt fake and scripted, and either like we're in a giant movie um, or we live in a simulation. And, you know, what happened with the NBA Finals is no different. So you had the Miami Heat versus the L.A. Lakers. Obviously, this year has been quite different from, you know, early on because of what happened with COVID-19. Um, Also, what's happened with issues of police brutality and racial injustice, um, 
it's just been chaos. And so the NBA set up this protective bubble and where the players got tested all the time. Anybody who was in the bubble got tested all the time for COVID-19. I believe it was a, a hotel in Orlando, Florida. And they've had zero positive tests. So insofar as stuff like that goes, wildly successful. You know, a lot of people are saying this is fundamentally the opposite of what's been happening with the NFL, how they've kind of been scrambling and messing up and they're not doing nearly as good of a job as uh, Adam Silver uh, and the NBA. So that alone is, is interesting to me. They've been in there for, in their bubble for months there. Early on, they weren't able to see their families. Then they changed some of the rules to bring the families in, but the families had to quarantine for a little bit. And then they're also getting routinely tested. So LeBron James and the Lakers uh, won the chip. And this is LeBron James' fourth ring. Uh, it's his fourth time being MVP. And listen, I mean, I'm a basketball fan. A lot of you guys know that. And I, I do think it's definitely the case that when you're having a conversation about the greatest of all time, LeBron is in that conversation. Obviously, Jordan is almost across the board viewed as the undisputed number one. I guess he's mildly disputed. But, uh, you know, most people will say Jordan's number one. But you have Jordan, uh, you know, LeBron, Kobe. Now I'm going to come back to Kobe in a second. Um, and then, of course, there are people bef way before my time and your time. You know, you could talk about the great Bill Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, it's always an interesting conversation, the GOAT conversation in any sport. But anyway, so LeBron and the Lakers won. Uh, I, I think it was incredible to watch. The Miami Heat are such a gritty team just so gritty. They had no business being in the finals. They were like a fourth or fifth seed um, getting into the playoffs. And really, you know, that team is just a testament to hard work, hustle, determination. Like, they're really punching above their weight. And for them to make it to the finals was really something special. And, um, you know, Adebayo is, is amazing. Butler is amazing. The whole team, again, the whole team is, um, is really something special. And you know, listening to NBA podcasts and former players, a lot of a lot of guys say that the the organization they have over at the Miami Heat is just a top-notch organization where they really expect a lot from their players. They're very disciplined and organized, and so you know, expect some some success from that team in the future as well. But you know, the Lakers and LeBron James um, pulled it off. This is LeBron's 17th season in the NBA. 17th, and the numbers he's putting up and how he looks on the court, it's somehow like he's still in his prime. I've never seen anything like this. It really is, is mind-blowing. Now, I know he takes care of himself. I know he does everything he possibly can to maintain that competitive edge and be top-notch, but really, your 17th season and you still look like you're in your prime, that's out of this world. 17 seasons, I mean, you know, most guys probably uh, retire before that. Your average NBA player, I forget, I, I looked this up years ago. I think it was like 11, 11 or 12 years is the average NBA career. So he's way beyond that. He should be, you know, on the rapid decline right now, and he's just not. And, you know, this gets to a point I've made previously, which is as much as I'm, I love an underdog story just as much as anybody else, particularly in the realm of sports, no, I love watching greatness. Like, yes, 
I get it. You know, everybody likes the idea of a story like the Miami Heat, the fourth or fifth seed coming in out of nowhere and, and, you know, dethroning the Kings. But really, ultimately, when it comes to sports, no, I want to see the greats do what the greats do. So, you know, I want to see the the people who are almost expected to win and have all that pressure on them, I want to see them come through because I want to be able to say that I live to see greatness, you know, in in all these various sports. Everybody knows I'm the biggest Tiger Woods fan on the planet. Um, He was expected to win every week, and he never let people down. Like, he always came through. And so I like that, whether it's golf, whether it's the NBA, whether it's other sports. No, I I, I want to see Usain Bolt (laughs) break all the records like he did. Um, So in some ways you could say I'm, I'm the ultimate bandwagon guy when it comes to sports. However, not really because, you know, I'll I'll always be a Knicks fan. But as soon as Kobe passed away, I said it, it would be the storybook ending to have LeBron win the chip on the Lakers for Kobe. And that's exactly what happened. And so this gets back to the point I initially made, which is everything feels fake. You have a situation where one of the greatest players of all time, dies in a tragic helicopter accident with his daughter and with other people who were there with them. They were literally going to a game for the kids. And it was foggy. The pilot got disoriented, which apparently can happen very easily, easier than you might expect. If you're in fog, you don't know what way is up or down or left or right. This is a real thing. So they crashed and they passed away. And, you know, that wasn't that long ago. And... I said at the time, everybody was saying it at the time, wouldn't it be something if LeBron James, on the Lakers, Kobe's former team that he led for years, wouldn't it be amazing if LeBron takes that team and wins it for Kobe? And that's exactly what happened. And, you know, to come through with all that pressure is really something else. I enjoyed watching it very much. Um, AD is out of this world. You can't take it away from him. Some people are saying that AD got robbed of the MVP There is a debate to be had there, whether it's LeBron or AD. I lean on the side of LeBron. But, uh, you know, if it did go to AD, nobody could complain. You know, I guess some people would. But you you could see it. His numbers were out of this world. But also just, again, the entire Lakers organization and all the, the players on the floor, their defense was stifling. Stifling. Just some of the best defense I've ever seen in my life. You know, you got a fan favorite guy like Caruso who uh, who started yesterday for the first time, and he's something else too, man. He does all, like, you know the advanced statistics? He's good at all those intangible X-factor things. Um, so he's amazing. Danny Green and Rondo previously were doing terrible in the playoffs, let's be honest, but Rondo stepped up, Danny Green stepped up. So, listen, it was just it was an amazing thing to see. Dwight Howard <laughs> gets a ring. J.R. Smith, of course, he's been on the team for seven and a half minutes, but he was shortlist before the game even ended, and he was one of the first ones to touch the trophy, which is classic J.R. Smith. But really, man, listen, I I loved seeing this. Um, And LeBron, Kobe, MJ, these are greatest of all time. I mean, you could talk about LeBron winning the ring, being down massively in the hole, coming back, winning for Cleveland. Um, That was out of this world, but now winning it, given the circumstance with Kobe, um, it's something else. And then also you sprinkle in all the the police brutality issues and how a lot of people in the NBA are stepping up. The criticism is correct if you say, hey, 
you know, they're kind of shielding China from criticism. And LeBron has business deals that work with China. And so it's kind of like look the other way on the harms over there and what's happening with Hong Kong and whatever. Um, but, yeah, bottom line is this was something special that we just witnessed. And it's nice to get a little positive news coming out of 2020 because it's been nothing but negative. So what I'm looking forward to now, and we'll wrap this segment up on this point, what I'm looking forward to now is a healed Golden State Warriors team up against this Lakers team. I would love to see that. I don't know what changes the Lakers are going to make. They shouldn't make many. But, you know, one of the things Corn said is what, happened if, what happens if Carmelo Anthony leaves Portland and goes to the Lakers because he wants his ring. And, they were, I mean, that's, that would be perfect. Like, he can actually win a ring with LeBron and AD. So, um, yeah, I'm just looking forward to seeing Lakers versus Golden State Warriors uh, next season. But I love this, you know, credit to, to the Lakers and um, – Credit to LeBron James, and, you know, we just witnessed some history, and I'm happy that they pulled it off, if for no other reason, for Kobe Bryant. Now that we're done with the non-politics, let's get into the politics. Politics time, politics time, politics time, it's a politics time. Well, let, me, let me figure something out here. My phone has been vibrating, and I want to fix that. Vibrate. Vibrate on ring. Vibrate on silent. Okay, there we go. Okay. Here we go. There was a bunch of drama over the weekend, and actually you can safely say over all of last week, about the stimulus bill. So Jeff Stein lays out for us a potential deal that was on the table. He says the deal Congress may reject would give $400 a week to 20 plus million unemployed people, $4,400 to tens of millions of families, many suffering pay cuts. That would be everybody making under 150,000, by the way. Uh, airline, restaurant, hotel workers, a shot to hold on. $300 billion to struggling local governments. So um, this is a deal that was on the table. It was on the table. It's a $1.8 trillion stimulus bill. Um, and really, it's a lifeline at a time of complete and utter desperation. Now, this was ironed out. I believe Steve Mnuchin was one of the head guys in the negotiations, in the talks. Um, Trump was actually on board. He, he's been flip-flopping like a fish fresh out of water. I mean, he was, you know, uh, I'm ordering Congress to shut down negotiations with Nancy Pelosi. Um, uh, now, not only do I want a stimulus, I want an even bigger stimulus than what the Democrats want. These are all things he said at different times. He's gone back, forth, back, forth, back, forth. When he shut down the negotiations on the stimulus, the market plummeted, and then he was feeling pressure from, you know, across the board. Virtually every outlet was dunking on him, and then he was like, okay, no, 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 see, what happened was, see, the sun was in my eyes, and what I meant when I said that the negotiations are shut down is the negotiations are back on to get something on my desk now. Okay, so he's been all over the place. Um, now, this deal was on the table. Nancy Pelosi said, no deal. Um, she said the, quote, heart of the matter is that 
Trump's administration's refusal to adopt national coronavirus testing and tracing plan is a non-starter. So she was saying, listen, I understand people need money, um, the deal's on the table. However, since your deal doesn't include anything on coronavirus testing and, and tracing, we're done here. She also cited the uh, liability shield, which is, you know, basically the idea of the liability shield is businesses want protection from lawsuits that if somebody gets COVID, you know, while they're in business X, that it's on them, it's not on the business. And so there were some liability shield protections for corporations apparently in this deal. And Nancy Pelosi says, oh, no, we can't. I'm not going to make a deal because I don't want that in there. Um, now, the other thing is Senate Republicans, there, there were mumbles behind the scenes that even if Nancy Pelosi said, you got a deal, $1.8 trillion, lifeline, money to families that need it, that Senate Republicans would be like, we're against it. We're against this. Why? They're Senate Republicans. And, you know, they always do, whenever it's money for regular people, they love to do the thing where they're like, oh, how are we going to pay for it? Oh, my God, the debt. Oh, my God, the deficit. Oh, my God, this is insane. You're giving away free money, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you would have seen the more Tea Party-esque roots of the Republican Party come out if Nancy Pelosi called their bluff. Now, in the case of Mnuchin, Mnuchin's a Wall Street guy. He understands that, you know, you actually need a giant stimulus bill to avoid, like, a depression, which would also hurt his buddies on Wall Street. So he's actually now on the side of a stimulus. Um, and you have Trump, and this gets to the main point, guys. Trump, because he wants to get reelected, and he knows this is his only shot at getting reelected, he's, he's now totally on board with you know, a stimulus bill as well. And Nancy Pelosi, even though you should be ready to do a stimulus bill right now, Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats, regardless of what they say and regardless of what issues they cherry pick to say this is why we're not going to agree, the reality is it's political. And Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats don't want to do a single thing that might change those polls coming into election day. Listen, that's the truth. That's the reason why she's really hesitating and basically saying no deal is because she thinks, well, if Trump gets the stimulus done and the checks go out, the checks might, even, might not even get out there until after the election. But if you cut this deal, you give Trump something to brag about, you give people a lifeline, then they might actually say, you know, we prefer Trump and we prefer the status quo. Because people need, you know, material well-being. And if if the government is providing that material well-being, then, yeah, a lot of the other noise becomes nonsense, and people vote based on their wallet. Um, now, what should be done? Listen, I mean, I would take the deal. I would take this deal. Um, whatever things are in there that are issues, it's a bullet that you can and should bite to help families who desperately need it. I mean, this is way past due anyway. People literally can't pay the bills. So you got to get the money to them. Now, you know, another thing that they could do, which they won't do, but 
if I was Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, I would say, I would call their bluff and accept this deal and then let the Senate Republicans slap it down and point the finger at them. But beyond that, you could just pass a standalone, clean uh, stimulus bill. So a standalone, clean, universal basic income bill for the rest of the crisis. So, and whatever number you want, $1,200, $600 every month, no strings attached for the rest of the crisis for everybody in the country. Or you could say the below $150,000 and below. Okay, I would do it for everybody, but let's say you got some disagreement within the caucus. Okay, fine. $1,200 or $1,600 for the remainder of the crisis for everybody below $150,000. Pass that bill. Clean, standalone, no other nonsense attached to it that you could argue over until the cows come home. Pass that, and then you blitz the media, and you have all the Democrats go on all the Sunday shows, talk to CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, whoever will listen, and you scream, we just passed the bill, you need to do it. You need to to sign on to this. You need to get the Republicans on board. The Republicans are blocking this. This is the relief for you. Now, you know, there was the CARES Act and then the HEROES Act. Like, they have passed bills through the House that are somewhat similar, but they're a little too... There's a little too much going on in there, and it's not, it's not politically intelligent enough to land with the same punch. And so if you pass just a clean stimulus bill, all the other stuff goes away, then um, I do think that politically that would be advantageous for the Democrats. And it would also put a lot of pressure on the Republicans to, you know, do something and to try to portray themselves as serious and not the bad guy. But now, you know, what's happening with Nancy Pelosi, it's very easy to point to her and say this is her and it's all political. And the reason she's not doing it is because she doesn't want to change the polls in regards to Joe Biden versus Trump. So they really are putting politics over policy and they don't care how much people are hurting. And there's only been one Democrat so far that I've seen. Now, maybe it's changed since you know, in the time between the recording of this and the releasing of this. But I've seen Ro Khanna said, no, take the deal. People need the money. This is not time to mess around. We got to do what we got to do. That only from Ro Khanna did I hear that. I didn't hear anything from AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Raul Grahava, Mark Pocan, Tulsi Gabbard, fill in the blank. Nobody said, other than Ro Khanna, you should take this deal. And, I mean, that really is crazy how... Honestly, we have a stimulus bill here that is desperately needed. It's really not that bad in terms of the substance of it. And Pelosi's saying no, and the Democrats are all falling in line behind Pelosi. Look how easy it is for this, like, corporatist leader of the Democrats to make everybody fall in line and do the political thing and not the correct thing. And that's depressing, and that's upsetting. And by the way, guys, just so you know, even if the Democrats sign on to this, I don't even think they're correct in thinking, hey, if you sign on to this, Trump is going to win the election. You might get a two- or three-point swing in Trump's direction nationally, but I still think Biden has enough of a cushion and a big enough lead that he would still win. So in other words, the thing that I think is the primary concern for Nancy is not even true. Like, it's not accurate. Like, you should do this to help the American people 
even if it did really help Trump. But it's not even going to really help Trump. It might help him a little bit, or it might help him not at all. Biden's lead is big enough. And like I said, a lot of the checks would probably not get out until after November 3rd anyway. I mean, this is, this is crazy, guys. This is crazy. Take the deal. Take the deal. But now, since you know, the Democrats basically said no, then now the Republicans are shifting their rhetoric as well, and now they're focusing more on the courts. By the way, Mitch McConnell is kind of screwing Trump as well, because Mitch McConnell, um, really, he wants his legacy to be, I packed all the courts with insane far-right people, and so any piece of left-wing legislation, populist legislation, that gets through for decades is immediately going to be slapped down by the courts. In other words, let's give right-wing ideologues veto power on anything Democrats or the left want to do for the next few decades. That's what Mitch McConnell wants as his legacy. He doesn't care about stimulus checks. He doesn't care about the American people and how they're struggling financially. He wants to cement a right-wing ideology in the country, and the way to do that is to pack the courts. He's effectively already done that, but now with Amy Coney Barrett, that's the cherry on top. That's, you know, 6-3 conservative court. It's a wrap. It's a wrap. So McConnell's been telling Trump, oh, if we do the stimulus, it's going to, it's going to take all the attention away from where it needs to be, which is the Supreme Court nomination. So don't do the stimulus. Let's focus on the Supreme Court nomination. And Trump's a moron. He doesn't realize that that actually would hurt him more to focus just on that. But, you know, he listens to whoever the last person is in the room because he's not that bright. And so McConnell got his ear and Trump is now going right along with that, which is only going to hurt him more in the election. So... This is not good, man. Washington is fundamentally broken. And I don't even think the Democrats are going to be able to block Amy Waffle Coney Island Barrett. It's not going to happen. So this is a really, really bad moment. It's a bad moment for the American people. It's a bad moment for the Democrats. Um, It's a bad moment for a potential future left-wing movement. And we got to acknowledge the reality. It's a crime that there isn't a stimulus that already happened. It's a crime. But here we are. And it looks like there probably will be no stimulus deal until after the election, if at all. And that means you're going to have a colossal wave of evictions, foreclosures, homelessness, suicide, desperation, despair, all of that stuff. And in D.C., they simply do not care. Okay, next. Okay, here we go, more. So the vice presidential debate, surprisingly, set some records. Pence-Harris debate draws more than 50 million viewers. 50 million. 26% spike from 2016. I don't know how many of you guys remember that, but we had Tim Kaine and Mike Pence. I was honestly astonished at how Tim Kaine came out of that debate looking worse than Mike Pence who's like a really 
really extreme fundamentalist Christian and a corporatist. And somehow Tim Kaine looked worse. He, he was more obnoxious and more annoying. Tim Kaine, uh, or uh, Mike Pence was a lot more composed, even though he's a super fake politician. But he did come across feeling better than Tim Kaine did. I was amazed at that. Now, the Kamala Harris debate, honestly, a little bit different. So um, according to the ABC poll, 51% of viewers said Harris won. 48% said Pence won. According to the CNN snap poll, you had 59% say Harris won, 38% say Pence won. Another thing is you could see that Pence's numbers were unchanged in terms of likability from before the debate to after the debate. And uh, Kamala's likability numbers went up a little bit from before the debate to after the debate. Now, ultimately, though, I, I do have to say I think this debate is largely a Rorschach test because the sense you got is, okay, this isn't a Trump-Biden thing. This isn't like a Trump-Hillary thing. This is the return to normalcy that people talk about. You have two very, very polished talking point machine robotic politicians doing their stump speech to each other. It was almost not a debate. It was just like, let's say the things that we've been coached to say over and over in a vacuum and it's just incidental that you're sitting next to me, my opponent. So, but again, in many ways, it's a Rorschach test because the Republicans go into it and go out of it saying, yeah, Pence won. The Democrats go into it and go out of it and say, yeah, uh, Kamala won. But really for the Democrats, it was more, the Democrats said that and the Independents said that. Whoever is persuadable, that tiny number, did side more with Kamala. So really, at the end of the day, Kamala did everything that she had to do in the sense that she did no harm, and Biden already has a giant lead. So if all she did was do no harm, she kind of won. And that's really what we saw. Um, there were moments that annoyed me from both of them. The thing about Pence that annoyed me is he never answered the questions, ever, 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 ever. Everything was obfuscating and dodging, and he would do his polite little politician shtick, but he would just take take it in whatever direction he wanted to. Oh, I get it. He chose to do that, but you come across really obnoxious and annoying when you do that. Like, if there's anything I could get across to people in terms of how to make people like you in a format like this is just be straightforward and answer the question and never use more words than you have to. Whatever you're trying to say, say it as quickly as possible, as to the point as possible, and as direct as possible, and answer the questions. And on that alone, people will go, I kind of like that. I kind of like that guy. Look at what he's doing. He's just getting right to it. But they do the opposite. They're as wordy as possible. And in the case of Pence, he just never answered any questions. It was ridiculous. Um, so he was annoying for that reason. There were moments that other people were giving Kamala credit for that made me want to stab my eye with a fork. Like when she would do the, excuse me, I'm talking. Uh, uh. <laughs> it was just so smug. The other one that really got under my skin was when she was asked a question about court packing. Instead of giving a direct answer, she did this weird thing where she ended up attacking Trump for appointing X number of judges. I don't know how many judges he's appointed, probably hundreds. And she said, like, and none of them were black. She, you're asked if, you're in if you and Biden are in favor of adding seats to the court. 
And you end up saying, well, Trump put hundreds of judges on the court and none of them are black. How dare you? It's just like, first of all, pump the brakes a little bit with the identity politics. You're pouring it on too hard. Second of all, it wasn't related to the question. <laughs> like, answer the question. Biden's been dodging. Kamala's been dodging. I think the idea is they don't want to piss off the left more on this question. Um, but listen, we all know, you know and I know, they ain't going to pack the court. They're not going to do it. I wish they would. I wish they would. They should, but they're not going to do it. But they're dancing around the question, I think, so as to not piss off the left more. Um, but the strongest point of the debate, um, honestly, was, I think, Kamala attacking Pence for the basic Republican stuff, like the Trump tax cuts. Um, and Pence couldn't stop lying. He would keep insisting that Biden wants to raise taxes on working class families when Biden has been crystal clear. If you make $400,000 or less, you're not getting a tax increase. Um, so now you could even argue with that from a left wing perspective. But B Pence and the Republicans, they just lie nonstop about Joe Biden and what he supports. And it was also annoying when, you know, Kamala would be like, Joe Biden is not going to ban fracking. You would think, the way the Democrats talk about that issue, you would think 80% of the country doesn't want to ban fracking. When you look in the areas that they're talking about, like Pennsylvania, it's like a 50-50 issue. It's always around 50-50. But the Republicans go on the offense and say, like, you want to ban fracking. And then the Democrats run away from these ideas, which that's not that extreme if you were to say, yes, let's ban fracking. I get it. Jobs are really important. But we have plans to create millions of jobs. Like the Green New Deal, which Biden is also not for, by the way. <laughs> so, like, you know, she runs away from the fracking thing. You could say, hey, she, nothing she could do. That's all Biden. True. Green New Deal, she has to run away from as well. But, yes, you do get the sense that in these debates it's a lot like what Internet Hippo tweeted brilliantly a while back, um, where he said, like, the debate is going to be, Trump accusing Biden of wanting to do a bunch of cool shit and Biden running away from it. It's like Trump being like, you want to give a lot more people health care, don't you? Biden's like, no, I do not. I promise you, under my administration, nobody knew would get health care. <laughs> like, that's really what, what it feels like in a lot of these debates. But anyway, um, yes, overall, I think Kamala edged it out. She did no harm, which, you know, is all she had to do. The onus was on Pence. And normally these things don't matter, let's be honest, electorally. But I do think in this case it might be a little bit different. Simply because Donald Trump is old and fat and he has COVID and Biden is old and his brain is melting. So they're really old, man. They are. They are. And they're not old and healthy. They're old and they have issues. So, you know, perhaps a lot of people tuned into this debate thinking, this is the real, this is the real presidential debate. Yes, they're technically VP, but they might not be. They could become president pretty quickly, if we're being honest. So maybe this one's a little bit different. Um, but yeah, speaking to my mom about it, and I always use her as like a good example of your normie American. Um, she actually said she liked the fact that it didn't feel as chaotic and crazy as Trump. And she actually liked the fact that it did feel like a return to normalcy with the polished politicians. Now, there are people out there who disagree with that. But yes, let's be honest. At this point in time, the country is tired. The country is beaten down. We've seen nothing but chaos and mayhem nonstop for years now. And so there are a lot of people who just want to press pause. Now, 
when we return back to normal, people will immediately realize, oh my God, normal sucked. Because <laughs> it's all of Trump's policies without the mean tweets and the show of it, right? So I think once we get to a place where we're back to normal, people will realize normal was horrendous, which is why we had Trump in the first place. But as of right now, I do think the mood of the country is more in line with what my mom was saying. And um, people want that. People want to take that deep breath and just feel like they could tune out for a little bit. And perhaps this is what this debate kind of made us feel like. And um, it was interesting, but a lot of it was exactly what I expected. And I don't think it changes much overall in terms of how the voting is going to go. Okay, where are we going? Where are we going, baby? Oh, our theory, our theory proven. So I like this next story because it really does verify something that not just me, but pretty much everybody on the left has been arguing for quite a while now. Um, so Dave Wasserman says the following. This slide from David Shore hits the nail on the head of why direct messaging against Trump, like Project Lincoln ads, is ineffective in swing states. Dem messages that actually move votes, talking about education and majoritarian economic policies. So you can see there, um, that's David Shore, and the slide says, across dozens of ad tests this year, direct attacks on Trump fall flat. The data is pointing to a focus on the mainly economic issues that perform best. Again, this is just exactly the theory that the left has been pushing forever. The idea that put aside all the other noise, put aside the culture war nonsense and the sideshow, if you put front and center this notion that I am here to help you and make your life better by giving you support economically, people go, oh, I approve. I like you. Whether it's, you know, whatever it might be, increasing the minimum wage, more unionization, um, Medicare for all, expanding health care, um, lowering the cost of prescription drugs or making them free, whatever it might be. When you talk about bread and butter economic issues, People go, okay, you're being a serious person, taking governing seriously, trying to improve the system, and so I will reward you for that and I will vote for you. So talking directly to people's material well-being is what brings them out to vote for you and to support you. And what have we seen recently with the Democrats? Well, definitely 2016, Hillary's entire campaign was Trump is bad. And Trump ended up winning. She, and all she would do is Trump is bad, Trump is bad, Trump is bad. As Trump was in the Rust Belt doing these rallies attacking NAFTA and outsourcing. And you do see, as a general rule, corporate Democrats lean into the culture war, lean into symbolism. Because they don't have anything material to offer you. And then they sprinkle in a bunch of Trump bad, like the Republicans of the Lincoln Project who don't like Trump. And notice, who do they get love and adoration from? From the most hardcore partisan corporate Democrats on the planet. So in other words, the people, they weren't 
on the fence. Their vote wasn't potentially going to go elsewhere. It was always going to go against Trump, so long as it's not Bernie, (laughs) who was the nominee. So you're preaching to the choir when you do that. You're taking all the MSNBC wine moms and you're saying, we're going to, we're going to corner this market. You're not reaching the former, the two times Obama voter who flipped to Trump. You're not reaching the person whose job got outsourced. You're not reaching the people who are gettable. You're not reaching them. So I just love that it's, there's now data that proves it. Now, I do think it's a little difficult in the case of Trump for this reason. The Democrats actually aren't for these bread and butter solutions. They're not for Medicare for all. They're not for free college. Um, So for them to focus on those issues is dishonest. So even if they did the right strategy, they would be lying (laughs) because they don't support the things that the American people support, according to the polling. Um, The left does but the Democrats don't. And so uh, in all seriousness, a Trump is bad case is more honest from coming from them, but it's also less effectual as likely to work. That's what the data shows. So it's a little bit of a conundrum. Would you rather have the Democrats, the, the corporate Democrats be honest and just bash Trump all day? Um, or would you rather have them be dishonest and do the thing that's probably going to work and get people to the polls? A little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a moral conundrum there, but it goes without saying, if you speak directly to people's material well-being, they will like you, they will support you, they will come out and vote for you. And we can put it to rest now, all the various theories of change, because the data is what it is, and I don't think it's going to change. Speaker of the House is trying to be slick. Look at this from Axios. Pelosi trolls Trump with bill to alter the 25th Amendment process. So the bill sets up a congressional committee to determine whether or not a president is fit to serve. The congressional committee can step in and say, I know the American people elected somebody, but we're going to determine whether or not it's okay. Like a council of elder oligarchs. To say, hmm, that one's acceptable, that one's not acceptable. Um, so she's doing this with Jamie Raskin. Jamie Raskin originally proposed this bill, I think, in 2016, and it established a body to be made up of physicians, psychiatrists, and former public officials like former presidents or cabinet secretaries selected by congressional leadership. So I do think this new one's a little bit different. The old one was, like I just said, physicians, psychiatrists, former public officials, people in the cabinet. I think this new one is just congressional leadership. Um, but either way, the idea here is, hey, we're going to determine both from a physical perspective and a a mental slash psychological perspective whether or not somebody is allowed to be president. The thing that I find so amazing about this, and just to be clear, she is just trolling Trump because this is going nowhere, right? But the thing that annoys me is, Let's assume for a second it did get implemented. 
and you'd have a bunch of the hashtag resistance wine moms who are really excited about that. How do you not understand it will immediately be used against Democrats? In fact, it will be used more successfully by Republicans against Democrats. I mean, the Democrats are running a zombie with a melting brain. Now, people could deny that all day long, but they're being ridiculous. We can see it. So the Democrats are, are running somebody who's really losing it by the day. And you want to set up this commission to determine whether or not somebody is prepared to handle the tough job of president right now in what is likely, you know, Trump's, the very end of Trump's time in office. So you would get this implemented. And then immediately after you get it implemented, day one, the Republicans would be like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to make sure that we set up one of these committees for Biden. And then they'd bring in their experts, experts who are highly political, who would say, yeah, no, the guy's on his way out. He's sundowning. He's got issues. He can't handle this from a physical perspective, from a psychological perspective. Who are we kidding? This guy's not prepared. This guy's not ready. And Nancy Pelosi and all of her loser corporate Democrat buddies would be sitting there like, I didn't see this coming. That's right. You didn't see it coming because you're idiots. On top, of, on top of being corrupt and doing the bidding of corporations and billionaires over the people, on top of that, they're also just not smart. Like, even if, even if you got rid of the corporate money from the system and you had the same merry band of idiots, they would still strategically shoot themselves in the dick every four and a half minutes because they're not bright. Forget, forget the idea of playing chess. Not only are they not playing chess, they're also not playing checkers. Because even in a game of checkers, you could see that this move is going to backfire and hurt you. Anybody could see it. Look at Joe Biden. Look at him. Listen, the way it works is it doesn't matter if you, if you hate the person in office. If they were elected, they were elected. That's how it works. Imagine for a second, Bernie Sanders won the primary and then won the presidency. That would be amazing. I'd love it. Are you kidding me? They would, of course, the Republicans would use this immediately. And they'd probably use it successfully. Because they have no problem. For them, it's all about power. It's all about power and crushing the opposition by any means necessary. The Democrats get love this, like, their obsession with process. And, oh, would you look at that? The process always ends up being violated by Republicans, followed by the Democrats, and so the Republicans end up getting their way. I get it again. She's just trolling. This is going nowhere. But it just annoys me that, like, of course this would be used against you, and it would be used more effectively against you, and yet you still want to do it because you're just a little virtue signaler. You know, this is right part and parcel with everything Nancy Pelosi does from the clap where she literally said after the clap, she was like, I don't know why people are acting like this was, you know, me being condescending. I was actually clapping for his speech. I liked it. The ripping up the speech like rubes cling to these symbolic nonsense things to view themselves, to view them as some sort of strong resistance. Because there is no actual there there or substance of the Democrats strongly resisting the Republicans. She passed Trump's military budget, which was a colossal increase. She gave him more NSA spying powers. More. On those two things alone, open and shut case. It's over. Case closed. They're, they're the assistance, not the resistance. To be fair, I didn't make that up, so I heard that from somebody else. But it's accurate. It's accurate. So 
congrats. They can't, like, they can't even troll properly. <laughs> they can't even troll properly. There are ways to troll that are reasonable that wouldn't immediately be flipped on you. Again, maybe I'm overstating this all because it comes to naught anyway. It's not getting anywhere. But I do think it just, it, it really does highlight this total lack of strategic ability from the Democrats, where, you know, usually you would propose something, even if it's going nowhere, you would propose something that theoretically benefits you guys and just you guys and wouldn't immediately backfire. But no, they can't even do that because they're really stupid on top of being corrupt. Okay. All right, let me make fun of celebrities before we take our first break. Okay, how does that sound? Nothing I love more than making fun of celebrities. A bunch of celebrities got together with Now This to prod people to vote. And the concept of what they do here is really weird. Completely butt-ass naked. I'm naked. I'm like naked. There isn't a man behind me. These are my hands. Why do you want me to be naked? I don't you think it's a thing ruffle out. Um, put your clothes on. To be honest, I wish I could cover my hands with my boobs, but here we are. I'm here to talk to you about voting. Did you know that ballots could be naked? And if you don't do exactly what I tell you, your ballot could get thrown out. This is uh, my ballot. Just got it. First of all, when your ballot comes, you're supposed to read the instructions. Read and follow the instructions that come with your ballot. If they say to use a black pen, use a black pen. I know that's like literally the least sexy thing a completely naked person could say, but... Uh, but I have scrum like a can of Pepsi. This problem? Number two. <laughs> In some states like Pennsylvania. 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 There are two envelopes you have to stuff your ballot in. Otherwise, it's called a naked ballot. Naked ballot. And you don't want to have one of those. Number three, mail your ballot in as soon as you can. Don't sit on them. Get those things out ASAP. Like now. Do it. Get it in as soon as you can. I gotta give my ballot to the mother post office. Let's go. Please vote. Take your clothes off and vote. Vote, vote, vote. Everyone's voice matters in this election. Please vote. America needs you. Yeah, here's why this gets under my skin so much. I view this as narcissism masquerading as virtuousness. That's what I think this is. Because they just want attention, and they just want to feel like good people, and so they do this. But I think it's so transparent. And also, listen, I don't... I think that they think they're a lot more liked than they are. Like, if you're, the, if you're in, you know, some shitty movie from four years ago... You think people have developed some sort of like emotional bond with you and they're looking at your every move? Like, no, of course not. They, they have this 
sense of grandiosity, which is just unearned, in my opinion. Um, and also, this isn't activism. Like, they think this is activism. This isn't activism. And they, like, it's true. These are the kinds of people, bar maybe a handful, but who will go right back to brunch. As the famous old sign said, as soon as any Democrat, Democrat X, is elected. Doesn't matter if that Democrat does all of the same policies as Trump or a Republican. They'd be like, hey, our team got in, so therefore, now we can shut our minds off because we know a good person is running the show. This is how they think. It really is. And I don't think I'm straw manning. I don't think I'm being hyperbolic. I think this really is what goes on. And the, the feigned concern about democracy now drives me crazy because where were all of these people in 2016 when we saw the WikiLeaks and they demonstrated in no uncertain terms that the DNC effectively rigged it to take it from Bernie? Where were they? Was everybody screaming about democracy and how important your vote is then? Was everybody screaming about democracy and how important your vote is when Bernie got more votes in Iowa but Mayor Pete declared victory? Where were these people then? They didn't care. They didn't care. They'd rather have a neoliberal corporatist in office than Bernie because Bernie might actually raise their taxes. Neoliberal corporatists, maybe in in a minor way he might, but it wouldn't be anything that they don't think they could handle well. So I guess what frustrates me is that if slash when Joe Biden is elected and he continues all of these wars, there's going to be no cutesy videos coming out where they try to get people to take a stand against it. It's going to be none of that because it's not about the issues for them. And that's what drives me crazy. It's not about the issues. It's not about the issues. And if it's not about the issues, then what are you doing? You're just trying some silly self-aggrandizement nonsense. And I also love it when celebrities who probably can't name a single policy, with some exceptions, to be fair, but celebrities who probably can't name a single policy that was implemented in the past decade are berating people about voting, as if, like, they're some super-informed citizens. You're not. You're not just some bandwagon nonsense. Again, I want to repeat it. They want attention and they want to feel like good people. Okay. And this is narcissism masquerading as virtuousness. Look at me. I'm naked. Isn't that so hot? Yes. Aren't I so hot? I'm going to be a good person and tell you to be a good person and vote for the good people who will continue the wars, but not do mean tweets. Like, I get it. I I honestly get it. When I see stuff like this, I get it. I get how there's, like, this cultural reckoning and this cultural backlash to how insular and obnoxious and insufferable Hollywood elites are. I get it. I get it. There's this, you know, conservative backlash to that of, like, these people don't like me. They look down on me. They're incredibly narcissistic and smug. And, uh, yeah, I would vote in a way to just say F you to them. Like, I get it. I get it. It just so happens that you, if you do that, and if you vote Republican to, you know, spite these clowns, you're also voting to continue the wars and to, you know, have the plutocrats and the oligarchs rob you blind. So there is no, like, don't never get sucked into that culture war thing because that's like the ultimate distraction on both sides from substantive issues. When, when you feel like that culture war nonsense overrides war, economic issues, NSA spying, issues that really, really, really matter, 
you just can't let the cultural stuff override that because then you're equally as unserious as all of these people that we're making fun of. But yeah, this is annoying. I'm annoyed by this. And it really got me almost irrationally angry when I saw it. Um, but this is where we're at. Who doesn't love being berated by celebrities on a regular basis? <laughs> it's wonderful. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, I got a lot more for you. Fox News shot themselves in the dick making fun of incredibly popular programs. Don't go anywhere. Do not go anywhere.
All right, bitch. We're back, everybody. Ugh. Let me tell you something. As soon as this show is over, which is not for a while, but as soon as it's over, I'm going to be crushing some pizza. That is for damn sure. Um, <clears throat> got some leftover, leftover pizza that I will be on cloud nine as I wolf it down. Okay, so, where were we? I believe we left off talking, about to talk about Brian Kilmeade. Fox News host Brian Kilmeade attacked the Working Families Party. Uh, Now, for those of you who don't know about the Working Families Party, they're, they're to the left of the Democrats. Perhaps not as far left as the Greens, but they're to the left of the Democrats, um, I used to really love them this last election. They got under my skin more so because they apparently their membership likely voted to endorse Bernie, but the management overrode them and basically endorsed Elizabeth Warren. Um, so what happened recently with them was ugly, but they're still better than your average corporate Democrat. Um, and so they released this new thing that is like a list of left-wing policies that they're going to try to force Joe Biden to sign on to. So they're trying to pressure Biden from the left. We can have a long conversation about how possible that is, but we're not going to do that at the moment. Um, Well, Fox News, Brian Kilmeade, Fox and Friends, they have an issue with these left-wing groups doing that. And... They're going to go through some of the things here that they think are outrageous, that they cannot believe that anybody would be pushing Joe Biden in this direction. Watch. Working Families Party, People's Charter, a thousand words, talking about uh, they're demanding of Joe Biden, by the way, a $15 minimum wage, $16 million immediately canceling student debt. They want affordable housing for all, sounds like Russia, uh, universal or free health care. They want to give, uh, give the public ownership stakes in all corporations, receiving bailouts, shifting money away from police departments towards communities. I think that this clip really shows perfectly why running real lefties who believe in something, why that's actually a wildly successful idea. Because if you have left-wingers running openly on these bold economic proposals, what you do is you bait these goofballs on the right to come out against stuff, which is just like, which most people view, according to the polls, as just super common sense. And, you know, there are a lot of pitfalls. The left makes the mistake oftentimes of leaning into issues where we don't have a majority support. And, yes, when you focus too much on certain social issues, you can turn people off. And instead of leaning into stuff where it's 50-50 in the polls or where the left is actually down, If you take the issues where we have a built-in advantage already and you lean into those, you bait the Republicans into showing their true nature and their true cards to the American people, and the American people would be just terrified of that. Look, he's 
He's attacking what's called the People's Charter, making fun of a $15 minimum wage, canceling student debt, affordable housing for all. He says, oh, that's like Russia. Universal health care. Easy for the left to bait the, the right into admitting they don't have reasonable goals. Because remember, even when Trump ran in 2016, one of the reasons he won is because on a bunch of issues, he outflanked in rhetoric the Democrats and made it seem like, no, actually, I'm going to do this. So, for example, stopping outsourcing was one. There was an interview with uh, 60 Minutes where he said, yeah, we're going to have health care for everybody, and if you can't afford it, we're going to take care of it. The government's going to take care of it. Now, listen, he contradicts himself all the time. He didn't follow through on any of that stuff. All that's clear. But there's a reason why when he was campaigning trying to win before his, his you know, instincts were dulled by Fox News, there's a reason why he said these things. Because it's duh. If you're a politician, you're supposed to be like, hey, I would like to help you and make your life better. Whereas these idiots are like, can you believe that they want to make people's lives better? Ridiculous. No, maybe you're ridiculous. $15 minimum wage is like an 80% issue, according to the polls. Canceling student debt is also wildly popular. Universal health care, 70% of the country now supports Medicare for all. They don't, and by the way, notice, they never actually present an argument. They just list these things with outrage. Universal health care. And then universal health care. You didn't say anything. <laughs> like, you got to make a point. Universal health care is bad because they got nothing. They got nothing. Because they know if they try to explain it, if they try to lay it out, they will look incredibly stupid. They already look stupid, but they look even more stupid. Guys, there are videos, and we've covered them on this show. There are videos where Fox News used to argue against protections for pre-existing conditions. I'm not kidding. They argued against protections for pre-existing conditions. And what happens is, historically, the left gets you know, some victories over time, and it becomes a third rail after you win on a lot of these things. Because then people are like, are you kidding me? We're going to go back to a time when you know, we didn't have Medicare, for example, we didn't have Social Security. What are you, out of your mind? That's why it's viewed as a third rail. You can't touch it. You can't openly run on cutting Social Security. People will be like, fuck you. It's the same thing. Now the Republicans have to pretend like they're for protecting pre-existing conditions, even though they're not. They're doing a, you know, a court case to slap down all of Obamacare. But they have to pretend like it because it's like, yeah, it's the duh thing. But what people are realizing, at least in terms of the economic stuff that the left pushes for, all of it is the duh thing. All of it. The entire left economic agenda is not actually even a left economic agenda. It is the moderate position. It is the mainstream position. It is the centrist position of the American people, which is why they have like 65%, 70% for virtually all these issues. So yes, yeah, see, this is why lefties should run and they should lean into all the economic stuff and even go as far as framing it as like, actually, no, I'm the centrist because I'm right in the center of mainstream American opinion. You're the extremist. I like them apples, Fox. I'll go ahead, casually make an argument against the living wage, you dipshits. I'd love that. You bait them into showing their true colors. 
that's what this is. And it's hilarious how, how propagandized they are. Now, there are people in their audience who are, you know, 82 years old who are watching this, shaking their head going, that's right. But that is a tiny sliver of the country, a tiny sliver. There's even people watching this segment who go, they, they pause. Wait, that's, some of that stuff seems perfectly reasonable. What are you talking about? Some of that stuff Trump pretended to believe in. <laughs> what are you talking about? So just do this and let them expose their true colors. And that's how you win elections. You win elections by leaning into stuff where you're popular and your opponent is not. You can bait the Republicans easily into taking unpopular positions. And then, by the way, after they do that, laugh at them. Laugh. I mean, they're, they're worthy of mockery. This is worthy of mockery. So I'm just, I'm just a humble guy giving some election advice here. That's all I'm doing. Um, but it's always, it always is something, isn't it? It's like when Sean Hannity put the thing on, on the screen attacking Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for her agenda, and you would swear that the thing that was put up on the screen was made by some intern who is pro-AOC and against Sean Hannity because the list was just like, it was awesome, and it sounded awesome. Like, they didn't even have the framing where they try to spin it to make it sound more nefarious than it is. Like, you know how with healthcare, they, they would say, like, government takeover of healthcare or socialized medicine. That's them putting the spin on it to be like, isn't this bad? But no, for the Hannity thing, I think they listed it as Medicare for all, which polls, again, at 70%. So people read that and they'll be like, aren't some of those things good? Aren't they all good? So anyway, Fox News, total idiots. These are, these are really rich people, really elitist people, pretending to be like for the average Joe and Jane. And then when you see a moment like this, you realize you've been had. You've been took. All right, next. Next, next, next. Donald Trump did a virtual rally. President Trump did what's being called a virtual rally with Rush Limbaugh. In reality, he just called into Rush Limbaugh's radio show and they talked for an extended period of time. Um, and so here's one of the moments from the interview, which I think is hilarious. Um, you know, early on in the 2015 primary, when like it first started, Rush Limbaugh and a lot of conservatives, they did not like Donald Trump. They preferred somebody like Ted Cruz, who they viewed as more conservative and more ideological. Um, and, you know, it took him a long time before he hopped on the bandwagon. But ever since he got on the bandwagon, oh, my God, now it's, you know, the love fest between the two of them. And he got the Presidential Medal of Freedom or whatever it is, which is just, I mean, that literally tarnishes that. Like, you can't, you can't give it to this guy, the biggest partisan hack in the country who's insanely corporatist. Okay, anyway, I digress. For every single war... Well, anyway, so in this virtual rally, you had Donald Trump fawning, sycophantic, gross speech from Rush Limbaugh, where Rush is really slobbing on that knob. Listen to this. You know, I, well, one of the things I've tried to do, learn to do over the course of years is to make the complex understand why I think this election, sir, it's really simple to explain it, but particularly people who are um, undecided, and I don't know how many of those there are. I frankly don't know how you can't be decided <laughs> by them, but 
it, this, this election is, is really, it boils down to two propositions. One is, it's between a man, you, who believes America is good and decent and great. Right. Against great people, potential. against people who are behind Joe Biden, who think America isn't good. They think America is unjust and immoral from the days of our founding, and they are trying to undermine and transform this country as founded. And that's why you are undermined, and that's why your successes are hidden, that's why your successes are distorted and lied about. It's no more complicated than that. Folks, if you love this country, if you love America, the America you think exists, you don't have a choice in this election. Your only choice is President Trump. If you don't support President Trump here, you are going to end up facilitating the transformation of America into a country it was never intended to be. You're going to have $13 a gallon gasoline with the Green New Deal. You're going to have so much disruption in your life that you can't possibly imagine. And don't doubt me, they're not going to be honest with you about this. But that's really what this is about. You are good. You believe America is good. You believe America is great. You want to keep it that way, and you want to solidify it, and you want America's greatness to be enshrined and empowered for decades beyond you. At the end, he actually says to Trump, you are good. You believe America is good. You believe America is great. You want America's greatness to be enshrined far beyond you. Imagine thinking that that's how Trump is thinking. Right, that's what this guy wakes up every morning thinking. How can I enshrine America's generation to last beyond my years? The dude has very clearly never thought about anybody but himself. Maybe there was like one time in 2003 where he thought about one of his kids for like two and a half minutes for whatever reason. Are you kidding me? The most narcissistic man on the planet, and you think he's thinking long-term, like, let me make America great in the long run, last beyond my years, and enshrine it permanently? I mean, it's just, it's comical. And the part that really, again, he said, you are good to Trump. (laughs) Come on, man. It's just so sad and so sycophantic. Anyway, um, so the world according to Rush Limbaugh. He's talking about the left, and he's talking about, I don't even know if you could call it the left. He's talking about the people who would vote for Joe Biden. <laughs> That's who he's talking about. And he's saying, they think America isn't good. They think America is unjust and immoral from our founding. You know, I, honestly, I would love to ask Rush Limbaugh, because he just said it. They think America is unjust and immoral from our founding. Like, is his claim that we weren't unjust and immoral from our founding because we did have slavery at our founding. This country was in part based on Native American genocide. You can counter argue that, well, okay, of course that's true, but there were also good things like the constitution and free speech. And like, yeah, that's, that's a fair point. But why does he say they think America is unjust and immoral from our founding as if that's an absurd position to hold? Like, obviously, Anything in the 1700s and early 1800s, you're going to find a lot of things that are unjust and immoral. Of course. Duh. Are you, do you have an issue with that? Do you not agree with that? Like, I don't, they say these insane things and act like you're the insane one. It's really strange. But even the idea that, oh, the left thinks America isn't good. 
quote, if you love this country, you don't have a choice but to vote for Trump. I'm just, I'm so tired. I feel like this is commentary that's permanently stuck in the year like 2001, you know, that you just casually assert that, well, my side is the good side. We're the good team. We love this country. The other side is the bad side. They hate this country. Like, isn't it obvious that anybody who's involved in politics, they're doing what they think is the right thing for the country? So none of it's coming from a place of hate. It's all coming from a place of love or an attempt to improve. Like, a lefty says, hey, I think we get health care wrong. I'd really love to improve our health care system and move towards a Medicare for all system and copy the rest of the developed world. Like, you're not even willing to grant them that they think that's the right thing to do, even if you disagree? And the answer is no, he's not. He just views, you know, people who don't agree with him as nefarious and that they hate America and they're trying to bring down America because he's a partisan hack tribal idiot, Rush Limbaugh is, who's never actually thought about these things in an interesting way or a substantive way or a serious way. His whole career is just strawmanning everybody he disagrees with and saying absurd things. If you love the country, you don't have a choice but to vote for Trump. And when he says, oh, they're going to do the, they're not going to do the Green New Deal. He brings up the Green New Deal and $13 gasoline. Biden and Kamala are not even for the Green New Deal. The left is well aware of that. Does he have a climate plan? Yes. Does it go far enough? No. But they don't, like, again, it doesn't matter. They were going to run this playbook against anybody. That they're socialist, they're Marxist, they're communist, they're insane, they're extreme. They were going to say it no matter who it was. No matter who it was, quote, you are good. You believe America is great. By the way, the irony of all of this, because Donald Trump's 2016 campaign slogan and half the time his campaign slogan in 2020 is make America great again. So Limbaugh's argument is you think America's already great. Your opponents think America's not great. No, according to Trump's own damn slogan, He doesn't think America is great right now, which is why he has to make it great again. So even like even his whole conception of what's happening is flatly contradicted by Trump's own messaging. And by the way, that's why Trump won in 2016 is because Rush Limbaugh was not the one who was running his campaign and running a standard, boring, down the line, neocon bullshit campaign. If Rush Limbaugh was at the helm of Trump's campaign, he never would have said the thing about, I'm not going to cut Social Security, I'm not going to cut Medicare. He never would have said the thing about, I'm not going to do the free trade deals, I'm going to protect your jobs and keep them here, I'm against outsourcing. He never would have said those things. He never would have, he never would have said the things against the Iraq war because Rush Limbaugh was the biggest cheerleader ever for the Iraq war. Rush Limbaugh, in this interview with Trump, at one point he says, the fake news media destroyed Bush by going after the Iraq war. You're talking to a guy who ran against the Iraq war. And the casual assumption from Russia is that, well, obviously Trump is for it. I'm just, I'm flabbergasted. There's never been a right-wing issue or a Republican who has been wrong in Rush Limbaugh's conception of the world, even if it's contradictory. Like, George W. Bush was right and correct for doing the Iraq war, and he's a good man. And Donald J. Trump is right and correct for being against the Iraq war as he's campaigning. You have to pick one, you jackass. Doesn't matter. Contradictions don't matter. He's a propagandist. He's a total propagandist. 
I don't know how anybody can listen to this stuff and think it's intelligent. I don't get it. I don't get it. But by the way, this is actually one of the reasons why Trump is probably going to lose, is because when he surrounded himself with nothing but Fox News clowns and One American News Network people and Hannity and Limbaugh, those guys weren't, they don't know what, what it was about Trumpism that made him different from Mitt Romney and other Republicans, which led him to win. They don't know. They don't know. And so now Trump is embracing all the stuff that's going to get him to lose. So in a weird way, I should be thanking Limbaugh. I should be thanking Hannity. I should be thanking them for making Trump the most standard establishment Republican of all time in terms of his actions and now rhetoric which is going to lead to his defeat. See, Trump was always a standard Republican in terms of his policies, always, because his policies always mirrored that of any Republican. But his rhetoric made him different and more palatable to regular Americans. Well, now the rhetoric's gone, too. There is no populism. There is no, it's just standard, you know, idiotic Mitt Romney, George W. Bush, and name any Republican in the country. He's just John Boehner, Mitch McConnell. He's just that, he's just those people now. So anyway... Yeah, we should be thanking Limbaugh for helping dull Trump's political instincts and bringing him where he is now. And I guess he's going to keep slobbing on that knob. But when Trump likely loses, what, like, what are these guys going to do? We already know Ben Shapiro's abandoning ship. We already saw it. We covered it the other day. He's running for the hills because he sees the writing on the wall. He sees it. So he's like, yeah, yeah, when Trump loses, it's on Trump. It ain't on me. It ain't on conservatism. It ain't on right-wing ideas. We're still cool. But it's on Trump. What's Limbaugh going to do? It'll be interesting to see. Okay, next. All right, so this is one of those stories that got under my skin the most this week, and I'll explain why. CBS says, the Taliban on Trump, quote, we hope he will win the election and withdraw U.S. troops. Now, this is just one example from CBS. Everybody's covered it. I've seen a headline from every single media outlet. And to one extent or another, they get snarky. They get snarky, like Taliban endorses Trump. And I really do view this story as just a perfect story. It's a litmus test. Are you serious about left-wing ideas and improving the country and improving the world? Or are you a tribal partisan hack? Now, why do I say that? I say that because if you take the bait on this story, you would rather try to burn Trump than end the wars. If you take the bait on this story, you'd rather go, ha ha, Taliban likes you, than go, I don't care what the Taliban says. I want to end the wars. Now, Let's be clear. This is not me saying Trump is actually going to end the wars, because he's not. He's not. He admitted it. He said to Jonathan Swan in the Axios interview, I'm going to keep 4,000 to 5,000 U.S. troops there on election day. That's how many will be there. Okay, so that's not ending it. It's not ending it. 
So he's not going to end the wars. But if you react to this story by saying the Taliban endorsed Trump, uh, for that reason, nobody should vote for him because he wants to end the wars. I'm against the Taliban. I'm for the wars. And that, I see a lot of that from the, from the resistance hacks. I see a lot of that from them. The real way to attack Trump on Afghanistan is to say what I just said. He's not ending the wars. He's going to keep four or 5,000 troops there. That's not ending it. He should end it. If he were to actually end it, he deserves credit. Because, again, it's about substance. It's about what's the right thing to do. The right thing to do is end the wars. We've been there 19 years. Why? Our infrastructure is crumbling. Take whatever money we're spending there, billions a month, and spend it here. Like, obviously, the issue matters. It matters massively. And if your line of attack is the Taliban agrees with Trump and Trump wants to end the war, therefore I'm for continuing the wars because I want to snub the Taliban and Trump, well, then you're, you're just not thoughtful. You're really reflexive in how you view the world. And you, didn't really, you never really cared about the issues. It's all about, like, just this game, this partisan game. Gotcha. Because they've done this, man. The, the Democrats, or excuse me, the Republicans used to do this to the Democrats. Because Obama's rhetoric would be about ending the wars. Now, he also didn't end the wars. But they would say, oh, the Taliban wants Obama to win. It was stupid then, and it's stupid now. A Republican was saying, oh, I'm against the Taliban. You know, therefore, I'm against Obama. I think the war should keep going. Obama's weak, and that's why the Taliban is agreeing with him. Those are stupid right-wing arguments to make. And now you see some resistance idiots making that argument against Trump. And it drives me crazy. It really does drive me crazy. Don't take the bait, man. Don't take the bait. You always have to put the issues first. Again, the real critique of Trump is he's lying. He's not going to end the wars. That's the real critique of Trump. How do people not get this at this late date? He increased drone strikes by 432%. And that fact came out of just his first year. It's probably gone up more since then. How do people not get this? How do people not see this? That he's pushing to war with Iran. He's been doing it with all these new sanctions. We'll get to that later in the show. There's even more sanctions on top of the sanctions. Look at what he's doing with Venezuela, starving that country, trying to squeeze the government out of power. The list goes on and on of all the countries that we're bombing, all the harm that we're doing, the neocons who are running the show. And the, the point that the media is going to make and the point that a lot of Democratic hacks are going to make is to focus on this. Oh, we can burn Trump because of the Taliban. Taliban wants to end the war. Trump says he does, so now I'm pro-war. Oh, my. It really is scary how the, the Overton window over the years really has become that the Republicans are far right and the Democrats are center right. They all agree on war. They all agree on Wall Street bailouts. They all agree on military-industrial complex issues, big pharma issues. And this is the logical result of it. The media should be better than that. And they should talk about these things in a serious way, but they don't. There are a lot of people who might not even know we're still at war because the media never even talks about it and covers it. Oh, man. Anyway, this really is a a perfect litmus test of an election. So 
hey, if you see somebody using this to try to burn Trump, you form your own conclusions, but I think it says a lot about whoever would do that. Okay. Um, we are going to talk about the funniest Trump story of all time. In just a second, I'm actually going to uh, turn off the heat in the studio because it is scorching hot. I didn't realize that I had left the heat on. I always, always, always have the AC on in the studio for the show because it get, tends to get hot anyway, um, even without the heat. Okay, I just flipped it. Not going to lie to you guys, I'm still thinking about that pizza, and I don't think that's going to stop. I think thoughts of pizza will permanently be in my head until I speak my last word on today's show. I'm a hungry boy. Over the years, Donald Trump has said a lot of things and done a lot of things that are hilarious, sometimes intentionally, most of the time unintentionally. Um, well, now the New York Times is reporting on something that was going on behind the scenes last week, namely when Trump was about to leave the hospital. And um, I mean, what do you even say about this? In several phone calls last weekend from the presidential suite, at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, Mr. Trump shared an idea he was considering. When he left the hospital, he wanted to appear frail at first when people saw him, according to people with knowledge of the conversations. But underneath his button-down dress shirt, he would wear a Superman T-shirt, which he would reveal as a symbol of strength when he ripped open the top layer. He ultimately did not go ahead with the stunt. Now, before I comment further on this, let me just say, there's a 30% chance in my mind that this story is made up. Because Trump does have a lot of people around him who don't like him, who can blame them. Um, and so I do feel like there's a decent number of stuff that's been said that has been made up over the years. A lot of these books that come out, like I, John Bolton, I assume he's lying in, in his book about Trump on most stuff. Trump's niece, I bet some of the stuff is exaggerated, some of it's true in that book. You never know. I really do feel like Trump brings out the worst characteristics in other people because they see how bad he is, how much he lies, how narcissistic he is, and people feel like, okay, I'll just be the same way in return. That is a sense I get. Now, that's just me. Some people may disagree. People might think everybody else around him is totally honest and he's the only one who's full of it. I think usually if you're in that orbit, you're also not a great person. Look at who he surrounded himself with, Roger Stone, Paul Manafort. I mean, the list goes on and on. Scaramucci, who somehow has now become a media darling, which is ridiculous. Um, but anyway, putting aside my, the 30% chance this is totally made up, if Trump actually did this, I think I would have said, oh, the whole thing with COVID was fake. Corin had floated that theory to me early on and said, I think this is fake. Because when he beats it, he might get a bump in the polls. You know, he's doing poorly in the polls. This is something that could help him turn it around. This is what Corin said to me early on when we discussed this issue. 
I wasn't buying it. Honestly, I'm still not buying it. But if Trump did this, when he's leaving Walter Reed, rips off his button-down shirt, and he's wearing a Superman thing underneath, I'd be like, oh, the whole thing was staged. It was all staged. Totally staged. I keep telling you guys a recurring theme now on this show, I've said it on Twitter and elsewhere, is that I feel like everything seems fake. Everything feels like a movie. Nothing seems real anymore. It's like we're in a simulation or somebody is literally scripting this and writing it and we're all just part of this grand scheme, this grand plot. We're characters in this thing. But this, this again, would, it would give me that moment of like, this can't be real. Nothing's felt real since 2016. But this even more so is like, excuse you? You can do the Superman shtick? So assuming this story is real, I wonder why he changed his mind. I wonder what made him realize this is not a good idea. I, I seriously wonder what would make him change his mind on this. Is it that he probably did, didn't occur to him about the 200 plus thousand, 210,000 people who are dead. Might feel like it'd be disrespectful to them. But yeah, there was something in his book uh, about how he thinks people want to believe in something bigger and better than them. And he tries to play that role of like, I'm not like your average person. I'm different. And I'm grandiose. That's why he always, you know, he would always have gold stuff. You ever seen his apartment? Gold everywhere. Um, and this would be right in line with that philosophy. I'm like, no, I'm not like, I, I, I defeated this thing. See, I'm stronger than the virus. And you know that they do, like there is this thing that happens usually with people on the far right where they do set, tend to think of this stuff as like it's a force of will thing. Like, oh, if you have the proper determination, you can override it. And it's like, I don't know how to tell you guys this, that's not the way a virus works. <laughs> Your will is irrelevant. It reminds me of a story my dad told me back in the day where he got his wisdom teeth pulled and he didn't fill the prescription for the painkillers afterward. And he thought, like, I'll just, I'll, I'll white knuckle it. I'll get my way through it. And then he literally collapsed at work when the, uh, the Novocaine wore off and he felt the pain. He collapsed at work and realized, yeah, mind over matter is not really a thing. It's only a thing within reason. Like, there are obviously things that it's just irrelevant how much your mind tries to override it. It's not going to happen. But you do get the sense that a lot of these goofballs think, like, no, yeah, he, he defeated the virus through pure force of will. Or it was the, you know, team of a dozen doctors who were on him 24-7 and the the antibody cocktail he got and remdesivir and the steroids and <laughs> everything he'd been taking the entire time. Or maybe it was that. You know, people don't have that same level of health care. By the way, I said something that was wrong the other day, and I need to correct it. Um, my friend who's the doctor uh, in the city where in an area that was very hard hit, he said people do get a, a blood plasma treatment but it's not the same as the one Trump had. Trump had the Regeneron um, treatment. It's an antibody cocktail, and it's a newer way of doing it, and it's not the same as the blood plasma treatment that people were getting at um, 
my friend's hospital. I thought it was the same treatment anybody gets. It's the same idea about antibodies, but no, Trump's is different. It's the Regeneron version of it. It's the antibody cocktail. It's new. And so people generally have not had access to that yet, although they might soon. But anyway, I digress. I'm kind of babbling now, but I can't, like the fact that this was, that we read this, Trump might've done the Superman thing. I don't, like my brain cannot grasp how insane everything is in the world right now. How ridiculous everything is. And it's also like, dude, you're 74 and you're fat, okay? You're 74, you're fat, you're going to pretend like you're Superman? (laughs) I mean, I will give it to Trump that he sometimes doesn't feel human, but that's not just a positive thing. It's also like, you know, the inability to have empathy for anybody like that's a thing that i noticed with him the inability to pick up on social cues like in the debate with biden where he just kept interrupting to the point where you didn't seem macho dude you seemed annoying so yeah he's got the thing where he doesn't feel human but that has a lot of negative things that go along with it as well but i mean ridiculous everything is ridiculous it is a joke we're a joke the i i just can't fathom everything that's happening in the country and um numbnuts may have actually done this i'm definitely happy he didn't okay next time to talk about amy coney island Amy Coney Barrett, um, who I will be referring to with a nickname shortly. I mean, I I still haven't decided. Amy Amy Waffle Coney Barrett. I could go, I could call her like Waffle Coney. (laughs) Or I could go with um, Coney Island. Amy Coney Island Barrett. I'm not, I haven't settled on which one I'm going to do. I've just been throwing it all out there, like in tweets and stuff. I call her Amy Waffle Coney Island Barrett. I know it's weird, but I'm a child. Um, I might go with Waffle Coney. It's just like, it just works. So anyway, Amy Coney Barrett slash uh, Waffle Coney is, her hearing is starting. She's, uh, you know, potentially going to fill Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat since Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. And her opening statement was released actually before the hearing. The hearing is going on as I'm talking to you right now, but we knew what her opening statement was going to be beforehand. And I want to talk about a part that was highlighted by the media. So Amy Coney Barrett's opening statement, notable line, quote, the policy decisions and value judgments of government of government must be made by the political branches elected by and accountable to the people. The public should not expect courts to do so, and courts should not try. So let me decode that for everybody. I think it's pretty self-explanatory, and perhaps you don't need the decoding, but I'll go ahead and do it anyway. What she's saying is the legislative branch, their job is to legislate. Their job is to come up with um, policies and laws and implement them. The judicial branch, that is not our job. Our job is not to do policymaking. Our job is not 
to do legislation. So I am, I'm not going to do that, and you shouldn't expect me or the court system to ever do that. So this is a line that you hear all the time from right-wing judges, left-wing judges. It's this idea that, hey, we're the branch of government that's above the fray. We're just calling balls and strikes. We're not creating new laws or anything like that. And really what we are is neutral. Really what we are is apolitical. We're objective. And you can depend on that. You can rely on that. In other words, we're not going to be activist judges. Now, again, this is a very common argument that you hear from. And there's a school of thought called originalism. There's also textualism, similar thing. The idea is, hey, the founder said X, Y, and Z. So I'm here to enforce X, Y, and Z. That's it. Nothing beyond that. I'm going to interpret the Constitution as originally intended. That's my job. This is, this is what she's saying. This is the right-wing judicial philosophy, at least in theory. Um, but here's why we're talking about this today. Because that's total nonsense. It's total nonsense. I'm not saying that this is the theory that she abides by and the theory is wrong. My point is nobody actually abides by that theory. So in other words, even the most hardcore originalist or textualist technically believes in the other theory, which is the living document theory, which means people interpret the Constitution in a way where you have to determine what's allowed and what's not allowed under the Constitution, and there's always going to be room for interpretation, and there's always going to be gray areas, because the founders could not and did not cover everything. So what do you do if it's an issue, nominally, where they didn't really weigh in on it, and they couldn't have even known about it, like something involving computers, for example? What do you do? Nobody's an originalist. Nobody's a textualist, because they didn't say anything on it. So everybody believes in a living document to one extent or another. And the other point is, guys, everything is political. Everything is. So when you have Amy Coney Barrett or anybody, Waffle Coney, saying, I'm, a, I'm not political, of course you are, because everything is political. Even if you make a decision that in your mind you're convinced, no, seriously, this is not political. It is political. Of course it is. So don't fall for the ruse of the objective judge. Antonin Scalia used to do this all the time. So his line was, who, me, bro? I never let my opinion get in the way. I can't let my opinion get in the way. I'm above that. I'm better than that. And so what I do is I take my personal beliefs and I put them aside, and I just go by what the Constitution says, the letter of the law, what the founders intended. That's always what I do. And a lot of people believe this line of garbage that this snake oil salesman is selling. When any look at his record, even just a quick glance at his record, immediately shows that's, of course, not what he is, and it's not even possible to do that. So in the case of Antonin Scalia, a great example of this is part of the right-wing judicial philosophy is states' rights. They always harp away on states' rights. So the federal government's got to be, like, weak and small and leave, delegate powers more to the states to let them make their own decisions. Well, Antonin Scalia, are there cases where he sided on with states' rights? Absolutely. 
there was a, a case involving immigration. I believe it was in Arizona, but I could be wrong on the state. Um, and they were saying, hey, we don't think the federal government is doing a good job enforcing the border. So us, the state of Arizona, we are going to enforce border policy. We're going to make our own border policy. We're going to patrol it. We're going to you know, maybe build our own wall, whatever it might be. Antonin Scalia said, of course they should be allowed to do that. Why shouldn't they be allowed to do that? If you're taking away their ability to do that, they're not even a state. They're not even a free state. They're subject to the tyrannical whims of the federal government. You've got to let them live as they want to live. States are the laboratories of democracy, and so they, of course they can determine what's going on with their own border. That's what he said in that case. Then there was another case involving state legalization of marijuana. Would you like to take a guess the position Antonin Scalia took on that one? He said, no, 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 states' rights are irrelevant. We have the supremacy clause of the Constitution, which says federal law overrides state laws. So the federal government says, you're not allowed to legalize weed in the states. So guess what? You're not allowed to legalize weed in the state. It might have been for California, I think, for that one, although I could be wrong about that too. So sorry, I'm siding with the federal government and against states' rights. So in other words, the dude who says, my opinion doesn't even get in the way, bro. Of course it does. It got in the way all the time. If, if you agreed with the federal government, you would side with the federal government over the states. If you agreed with the states on the issue, you would side with the states over the federal government. There's no apolitical, neutral, above the fray, holier than thou thing going on here. Everything is political. And then they just rationalize backwards from whatever their opinion is. They rationalize backwards using legal texts to say, see, this is, what, this is the direction we're going to go in. So I'm just so sick because it's so disingenuous. And I don't just mean it for, uh, on right-wing judges because a lot of left-wing judges would say similar things. Like, just stop pretending that you're holier than thou and you're just by the book and the letter of the law. Nothing, almost nothing is clear in the letter of the law anyway, especially in the Constitution. So there's always going to be you know, reading between the lines, trying to interpret something, and there's reasonable disagreement about how to interpret it. So let's just be honest about everything. It's like, this is, a, this is a point that Glenn Greenwald has made for a long time. And I feel like earlier on, I didn't agree with it as much. Now I pretty much totally agree with it. Um, he says, like, listen, if you're a journalist, we all have biases. We all have beliefs. We all have opinions. The difference is, some people are honest enough to tell you what those are up front. And other people hide it and pretend like they don't have the opinions. And then he says, I think everybody who's in journalism should basically tell you everything they believe up front. So you know where they're coming from. You know, instead of playing this game of fake objectivity, because you're not objective. Nobody's objective. That's his point. Um, and again, now I definitely feel like, this, especially with, when it comes to judges, I hate this tap dance of like, where they all have to pretend like our job is not to make the laws. It's, that's Congress's job, so we're not going to get involved. We're not going to be activist judges. Of course you are. If you strike down a law and say it's unconstitutional, that's political. If you uphold a law and say it is constitutional, that's political. Just be honest about that, that you're always going to be getting involved in, in policymaking. You are. You know, it's just policymaking through a different avenue. That's it. That's all it is. Determining the constitutionality of something is still policymaking because you have the ability to slap a bunch of stuff down and uphold other things. It's just, I, this is total bullshit, and I hate that 
people, like the media uncritically said this and held it up as like, you know, look at this reasonable thing that this reasonable person is saying. But it's not true. It's total nonsense. Or can we talk about that? No, you can't. Of course not. That's why you come here to have this conversation. But, you know, if you are honest, then you get borked. Robert Bork was a little too honest, and then he was, you know, basically not allowed on the court. And um, now I'm happy he didn't get on the court, but the reason I'm happy is because he's a right-wing lunatic. It's not the honesty that I'm against. It's the right-wing lunacy that I'm against. But, yeah, I feel like everybody should be more honest about it, about this, that everybody is a mix of, like, originalism and living document philosophy. Everybody's a mix, and it's really just a matter of, People use legal rationalizations to back up what they think is the most reasonable position because they personally have come to that conclusion based on whatever they've experienced and seen and read. So Waffle Coney is probably going to get on the court, and then if the Democrats don't pack it, I can't tell you how much damage will be done over time. Okay, next. So the bad news that broke a few days ago is that the October 15th debate between Trump and Biden has officially been canceled. Um, What happened was after Trump's diagnosis, COVID-19, they took a few days and then they announced like, okay, we're going to do a virtual debate for obvious reasons, for obvious, because this dude's got COVID, right? Or he did. They don't want to take any chances. You know, there's a lot of sketchy stuff going on in and around the White House. The most recent number I saw from about a week ago is that 34 people at the White House got covid There was like a security guard who was close to death as a result of it. So this is serious. So Biden, I mean, and his team, very reasonably, probably were like, yeah, virtual makes sense. And the debate commission agreed. They're like, yeah, duh, of course that makes sense. Um, Well, Trump rejected it, and he rejected it pretty much immediately. And, you know, I don't know why, but he's like, oh, I don't trust that format. You don't trust any format. You always complain about fake news, fake moderators, and, oh, they're biased against me and this and that in the current format. Even if it's the same, but it's just virtual, who cares? Like, what's the difference? So anyway, I think this is a really, really big mistake for Trump because, listen, he's down big. He's down big. The polls were all adjusted post-2016 to become more accurate. And even with the adjusted polls, Biden has a 10-point average lead. So he needs to take every opportunity he can get to try to turn the ship around and for him to pull out, basically, now some people are saying, oh, I think he's scared. He's not scared. He's Donald Trump. He's, you know, he's got that insane arrogance where he always is going to think, like, he did the most amazing thing ever. Um, but for him not to do this debate, I mean, again, pound the gavel. People make fun of me because I've been using that phrase a lot. But, yeah, pound the gavel. Game, set, match, son. Dunskies, over. Dunzo. What are you talking about? So... Trump is making a giant mistake here. So what should be done? Well, honestly, 
if I was the debate commission and the debate, it's they're corrupt. They shouldn't. Even, it should be done totally differently. It's just a, it's just Democrats and Republicans trying to screw the other um, third-party candidates. But if I was them, okay, have an event, have Biden invite Joe Jorgensen, the Libertarian, invite Howie Hawkins, the Green Party person, and have a debate with those three. Why not? Why not? And if they're so corrupt that they don't even want to consider the Jorgensen and Hawkins thing, okay, then have Biden and do a town hall. Have it continue to go anyway to put more pressure on Trump where he's like, I'm just giving, you know, Biden two hours in prime time to say whatever he wants. That's, I I don't want that. I want to be there to counter whatever he's saying. But, you know, I don't know if they're going to do that. It's also annoying. Like, they really are giant babies. They really are. Like, I I do side more with Biden on this because I get it. Like, I don't want to stand even 15 feet away from somebody who just had COVID where this guy's yelling the entire time. I don't want to do that. Who would? So I side more with Biden on that. But it really is crazy how it's just like these are big babies. Like, come on, iron it out, get the details down, and go do it. It, Like, this is – like, it's really important to determine – Who's going to be the president? And you're just going to casually skip the next debate? I know some people told me, like, the last one turned them off so much they're not even going to watch anymore from now on. But I don't know. I do think the more we see, the better. The more we see, the better. I want to know what's going on. I want to know where they stand. I want to know how they look. All that stuff. And um, just complete babies. And hasn't it become, in recent years, I feel like it's become... A little bit of a tradition to have three general election debates, right? Like, I'm pretty sure Barack Obama and McCain had three. Romney and Obama had three. Um, Hillary and Trump had three. And we're just going to not do that anymore? I like I liked that. I like the three. I feel like three is a good number. Um, so, anyway, this is annoying. This is obnoxious. Trump is so silly for backing out of this. And... He needs all the help he can get, and he's definitely screwing himself a little bit and giving up an opportunity where he could turn the ship around. Because one of the things I said he definitely needs in order to win is dominant debate performances. And he didn't have it in the first one, so if you're not even going to have the second one, it almost feels like he's trying to lose. I know he's not, but it almost feels like he's trying to lose. All right, we're going to talk about what's happening with Iran and how this doesn't get nearly enough press. One of the things that frustrates me beyond belief is that so many issues which are so serious are just not discussed nearly enough, not presented nearly enough by the media And it's inexcusable. It's inexcusable. The fact that you have to, like, dig and search really hard for the most serious things happening in the world, it's maddening. It's maddening. Well, Common Dreams is uh, reporting on one of these kinds of issues. It's about Iran, and they say the following. So first, the tweet from John Hudson. Scoop, Trump administration to impose crushing new sanctions on Iran tomorrow in defiance of Europe's humanitarian objections. The result is an effective blacklist of the entire Iranian financial industry, which could impact food and medicine imports. According to Bloomberg, the new sanctions 
would designate the Iranian financial sector under Executive Order 13902, which President Donald Trump signed in January to clamp down on mining, construction, and other industries. That would not only affect banks, but also remittance processors, money changers, and the informal transfer system used frequently in the Muslim world, known as Hawala. Quote, then the administration would blacklist roughly 14 banks in Iran that have so far escaped some U.S. restrictions, Bloomberg noted. The sanctions come just days after, the, after Iran reported a record 4,151 new coronavirus infections over a 24-hour period, bringing the nation's total number of positive cases to more than 479,000. The hardest-hit nation in the Middle East, Iran, has reported nearly 30,000 deaths from the coronavirus, a figure that critics said will only be made worse by the Trump administration's economic warfare. So, just to be clear, the Trump administration had already been sanctioning medicine. I know because we covered the story, and it even got to the International Criminal Court, and the International Criminal Court said, hey, United States, you are not allowed to sanction medicine. This is for civilians. This is unacceptable. This constitutes a war crime that you're doing it. And our reaction to it, the Trump administration's reaction to it was pulling out of the International Criminal Court and saying, you can go screw yourself. We're going to keep doing it. So we're already sanctioning that kind of stuff. They already have a zillion sanctions on them. And now they're adding even more. So why is this happening? Well, we've been discussing it over the past few months. Donald Trump and his merry band of bloodthirsty neocons, I think a lot of them see the writing on the wall, and they know that Trump is probably going to lose. So they're making this last-ditch effort, this push, to try to oust the government, to try to implode the country, to try to get new leadership, to try to do regime change. And this is what happens when you pack your administration full of these neocons. Now, thankfully, John Bolton's not there anymore, but Gina Haspel's still there. Mike Pompeo is still there and more powerful than ever. So this is unacceptable. And let's be clear, this is one of those issues where there is no comparison between Biden and Trump. Biden would have kept us in the Iran deal because he was part of the administration that negotiated it. Of course, he's not going to attack one of his signature accomplishments. And there's a decent chance that if Biden gets elected, he'll put us right back in that agreement, which is necessary, and the Paris Climate Agreement, which is necessary. Those things, there are too many areas where Trump and Biden are similar. There are way too many of them, and we talk about them all the time. On the issue of Iran and on the issue of the Paris Climate Agreement, they're not similar. They're not even close to similar. Biden is just better, okay? So they're really trying to squeeze out the government in the fourth quarter here for Trump. And they don't care who gets hurt in the process. They don't care about the civilians. They never cared about the civilians. They never did. They always pretend like, oh, yeah, the reason why we want to get rid of the government is because of the civilians. We need to look out for the Iranians. They don't even care about Americans. So, of course, they don't care about Iranians. What they care about is having another country under their thumb. Because this is what imperialists do, you know? And go back, listen, go back and read the history. Don't take my word for it. It would blow your mind, a lot of what's happened over the years. It would blow your mind. Just the fact that we overthrew their democratically elected leader, Mohammed Mossadegh, and I believe it was 1953. He was a leftist. You know what he wanted to do? 
nationalize the oil and give the money to the people. We overthrew them and said, uh-uh, that's not allowed. Because we're us in the UK, we're getting that oil cheaply. So you're not going to look out for Iranians with your own natural resources. We're going to take your natural resources. We put in the Shah. He was a dictator. He was overthrowing the 1979 Islamic Revolution. By the way, one of the reasons why it was an Islamic revolution and not a secular revolution is because one of the few places that Iranians could meet and strategize and plan and organize was in mosques. It's one of the few places where the Shah and his cronies were not spying. So that's not to say, oh, my God, the, you know, the Shia theocracy in Iran is perfect. Of course they're not. They're oppressors as well. But let's just understand our role has been meddling, stealing, and we're trying to oust the government. We have no business doing any of this, but we're trying to oust the government, and we don't care how many civilians get hurt in the process. This is a story that should be talked about a lot more in the media, and it's just not. And it's pathetic. They're doing war crimes on top of war crimes. You would think that the anti-Trump resistance would maybe put this front and center, but they don't. And it's totally inexcusable. All right, now, the last story of the day, and uh, we're ending on a kind of funny note here. This story is really something else. Priest arrested for having threesome with corset-wearing dominatrixes, trixes, trisses? I don't know why they spelled it like that, on church altar. Arrested for having a threesome with dominatrixes. So the women were two porn stars. You can see them here. Um, they were recording themselves in the act. So there, there was a video camera there. Now, what happened was somebody saw the lights were on late in the church, and so they peeked into the church, and they saw what was going on, and they called the cops. They called the cops. I, I would love to know who that was that called the cops. Um, so they were arrested and charged with obscenity. That was the charge that they, they were able to muck up against them, obscenity. Because they said, oh, you're having sex in the public view. Now, listen, I have to say, I, I don't know if I buy that. If they're in the church and, you know, somebody happened to, like, get mildly curious because they saw the lights on, and then they peek in there. I really don't think that's any different than if you like accidentally leave a window open or you didn't shut the curtain and somebody can peek in and see, see you having sex in your own home. It's like, should you get arrested for that? Well, no, you're in your own home. Yes, next time be more careful and close the curtain, of course. But is it illegal? Is it illegal that you forgot to close the curtain and you were caught having sex in your own home? Now, you could say, hey, it's a little different because it's a church. It's not his property. Well, he is a priest, so it's like partially he's in charge. I don't know, man. 
I don't know. I'm just, I'm just posing the questions here. That's all I'm doing. But I do feel like the obscenity charge is overkill. It's kind of BS. And this part of the article pissed me off the most. Quote, the archbishop of the New Orleans archdiocese visited the church to perform a ritual that would restore the sanctity of the altar. So they defiled it. They brought Satan in the room with their sinful, lustful acts. And they needed to perform a ritual that would restore the sanctity of the altar. Like, don't, don't, don't pretend like this is real. You know what I mean? Like, don't pretend like you're actually doing something to purify the area or whatever. This guy obviously was like excommunicated or whatever the term is from the church, um, facing the charges. Overall, let him go. And the main reason why I say that is, so this Catholic priest getting brought down on this, meanwhile, how many hundreds, if not thousands, definitely thousands, of Catholic priests were diddling kids as standard operating procedure, and then when they found out about it, they would shuffle them from church to church. They would just have them move from one place to another place where they would continue to boink children. So the child molesters and abusers and rapists go free, but the guy who had consensual sex is locked up on obscenity charges. No, 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 no. This I am not okay with. This I cannot abide. Listen, again, do I think there's a debate about the legality of what he did? Sure. I think there's a debate. Should he definitely close the curtains next time? Yeah, yeah, close the curtain, dipshit. Um, But... You can't tell me that what happened here is equal to or worse than what happened with the Catholic priests all the time. Those people should be in prison. And by the way, a lot of them aren't, namely because there were these like massive payouts. Like I think the Catholic Church, correct me if I'm wrong, paid out billions of dollars to make a lot of this stuff go away. Listen, I'm inclined to say it. Hey, you could say he's sleazy. You could say this is weird. You gotta let him go, man. You gotta let him go. This is not that serious. And for the for the rat who was peeking around and was like, "Oh my goodness, sexual intercourse in a church." Go mind your business. Go mind your business. It's really gonna kill you. You saw it for two seconds. If you don't like it, go away. Walk away. I, I honestly feel like, like, let's say the person who saw it happening and then called the cops, if they stayed there and watched them continue to fornicate, I think that's even creepier than what they were doing consensually in the church. Like, there's nothing, there's nothing actually holy about the area. It's just a building. <laughs> so, okay, whatever. I digress. I'm babbling on here. Bottom line is, um, they're arrested, charged with obscenity. Let them go. You're going to give them a criminal record? For something like this, it just seems so childish, no pun intended, because the real criminals are the ones who did stuff to children. Okay. All right, y'all. We are done, baby. I love y'all. I will talk to you soon. Disgusting day here in New York. It's time for your boy to go eat some pizza. I'm out, y'all. Peace.